0: So if you'd like to turn to Revelation chapter 1, we're going to be taking a look at the vision that John has of Jesus Christ in verses 9 uh, through 20. I'll be reading in the beginning of uh, verse 9 and through verse 20, chapter 1 of Revelation. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit and behind me I heard a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Would you join me to pray that God would bless our time this morning? Father God, we come to you and Lord, we're in love with you. Lord, we can't think of anything we'd rather do than be with you be in your presence, God, to study together, to fellowship together this morning, and we're counting on you, God, to open our ears and our hearts that we might fully grasp the things that you have for us this morning. And Holy Spirit, I'm so aware of my need for you to empower me that my words might be meaningful, that they might be your words in your heart, God, to your flock. And so I'm praying, Holy Spirit, that you would empower me and that your word would go out and not return void, but accomplish the purpose for which you're sending it this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we began the book of Revelation, and the word revelation itself is apocalypsis in Greek, and it means the unveiling, the unwrapping, the disclosure of something, and in this case being in disclosure of Jesus Christ. It's also the unveiling of future events that are going to take place at the time when it's ripe and the Lord comes back for his church and judgment begins in the world, and finally uh, we will be with him forever and ever. But the time has not yet come, and so God in his graciousness gives us a peek, a preview of the things that he considered important for us to know about the coming times and what's ahead for the church. John is the one that receives this revelation. Historically, we know that John was the only disciple who wasn't martyred for his faith. All the others died very brutal and ugly deaths. It's not that they didn't try to kill John. We know from Scripture that they actually boiled John in oil. But he survived. And because he survived and there was a a sense of fear of God at the result of a man being boiled alive in oil and him surviving, they sent him off to a, a rocky island called the island of Patmos. It was a small island. There was nothing there except rock quarries. And we know from history, and uh, knowing that John was approximately the same age of Jesus, that he was about 96 at the time of this writing, of this this, uh, gospel of Revelation, this teaching of the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so John is on this island, and while he's on this island, God reveals to him things that were not known things about the future, things that that are still, in many cases, in our time, still awaiting us, still future events that have not yet unfolded historically. And John begins this section in verse 9 by saying that he's their brother of the seven churches. He goes on and says, not only am I your brother, but I am your companion in the suffering of Christ. I really like the way that John phrases this, and and I find that there are... Nuggets almost in every little piece of Scripture if if we take the time to consider what it means. Last week I talked about John, and if you recall, John identifies himself as the servant of God. And today he's calling himself a brother of the seven churches and a companion in all that the Christian life means. You know, if I had been John, I probably would have introduced this slightly differently. I might have said, I, John, the very favorite disciple of Jesus. Or, I, John, the one who lasted longer than all the others. (laughs) I, John, who was boiled in oil and lived to tell about it. But he doesn't exalt himself in any way. In fact, I find that John, at the age of 96, is more humble than he's been in his entire life. Do you recall that when he was a younger man following Christ, he wanted to be named as one of the ones on the right and the left of Jesus. He wasn't a very humble man. But over the years, through the work of the Spirit and through the work of God, he became a very humble leader. So much so that he didn't exalt himself, but he said of himself, I am a mere servant of Jesus Christ, and a servant of the body of Christ. And I'm your brother, and I'm your companion. It's clear to me from Scripture that leadership that honors God Is leadership that demonstrates humility. Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be the servant of all. In my time being here on the island and being involved in this beautiful fellowship, one of the marks I think that God has placed on this church is a very, very much a heart of service and of brotherliness and of companionship together. In fact, I don't see in our fellowship some some things that sometimes can occur in fellowships where there's a lording it over others. And I want to encourage you, especially if you're a leader in our fellowship, that that you live a life like John. That you don't have to be ninety-six to be a humble leader, but that you model this lifestyle that John is laying out for us in this first chapter of the book of Revelation, of humility, of being a servant to all, of considering himself not someone over anyone, Although he received a great revelation from God, but he considered himself on the same level with the brothers and sisters in the seven churches and a companion in all that it meant to be a Christian at that time. And he says in the latter part of uh, verse 9 that he's a companion with them in their suffering. John suffered greatly for his testimony and for the word of God. He suffered physically physically, The church at that time was going through a great persecution. It wasn't uncommon for people to lose homes, to be separated from families, to people, for Christian leaders to be drawn and quartered or burned or crucified or boiled in oil. All these things were common occurrences at that time. And if you were a Christian leader at that time, you had a big bullseye on your head. And it wouldn't be long before you would hear a knock on the door and you would be taken away by by the leaders of Rome for causing disruptions, for being a problem and a nuisance in in, uh, Rome at that time that was being saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John was no exception. He was on this island, as we know from Scripture and from history, for about 18 months. And a 96-year-old man deserves much better than being on on an isolated island, separated from family and friends. But the gospel of Christ and the testimony of Jesus took John to the island of Patmos. And here on the island of Patmos, a 96 year old man who should be revered and who should be teaching younger men and leading fellowships in what it means to be godly and to walk after the Lord Jesus Christ, instead was working in in the quarries for a year and a half at least, and possibly two years. Now we know that he was released, but this was the last and final work that God did in his life that we know of. And it was the book of Revelation. And so John suffered. And you know I have to say that, at least according to Scripture, the Bible says that any one of us who wants to live a godly life needs to be prepared to suffer and face persecution. We don't get a lot of suffering and persecution in the United States. I think for many Christians, and maybe you can relate to this, if you're sharing your faith with someone, or if you have a scripture on your desk at work, or if you some way, in some manner, bring attention to the Lord, about the worst that we suffer is someone going... Oh, brother, not another born-again believer. Right? Have any of you been burned alive? Well, you don't look like... You look like you're nice and healthy. I don't see anybody that looks like they're suffering from having been boiled in oil. Most of you look like you're all together, not drawn and quartered. So the reality is, is that most of us aren't suffering the kind of persecution the early church did. For us, suffering is a little embarrassing. And I am the first to admit that when somebody rolls their eyes and says, oh, not another one of you guys, that there's something in me that wants to, to back off. Aren't you like that to some degree? But the Gospel is so important that we can't. The Word of Life is so critical that, and that person is an everlasting being. They're going to live forever either with Christ or apart from Christ in hell. And so the message has to be spoken and we must not be afraid. And I want to encourage you and I I I am not. um, I've never received a revelation like John. I don't know what the future holds, except what the Scriptures reveal to us. But I I believe that there's going to come a time, even in the United States, when it's going to be a very costly thing to stand up for the name of Jesus. I just received a, a petition this morning from someone. I'd read it on the internet, but I don't believe very many things on the internet. I'm always cautious. But I had read and now read again that there is a a movement to remove all Christian programming from television, from radio, and from the media. They're trying to outlaw it. Now, this is not obviously going to happen. Not today, anyway. Maybe not next year. But everything is incremental. Everything in our culture, people have learned how to incrementally destroy the foundation of morality and Christianity in our culture. They don't do it in giant swipes anymore, but they do it incrementally and they tear away at the foundation. And I believe there will come a time when it will be a costly thing to be a Christian. I share that with you, not to frighten you, but to prepare you so that even now you are beginning to be a man or a woman who is growing to full maturity in Christ so that when and if that day comes, when it's a very costly thing to stand for the name of Christ, that without fear... Without hesitation, you will say, yes, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. He has transformed my life, and he can do the same for you. And so John was on this island suffering, and the church was suffering at this time, and he says, brothers and sisters, I am your companion in the suffering of Christ. He says also that he is their companion in the kingdom of Jesus. Now, the kingdom that Jesus was talking about was not an earthly realm or reign. It wasn't the Roman kingdom he was referring to. When Jesus talks about the kingdom and he tells parable after parable in the New Testament, he's talking about the heavenly kingdom. The Bible says that when you receive Christ, you are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Son, whom he loves. Something very significant happened. Now, for some of you, you you experienced intense joy, For myself, I had this incredible love for other people that I'd never had before. It wasn't me. I knew it wasn't me. I was self-centered. I was concerned about how people viewed me. But when I received Christ, this powerful love that I just couldn't contain was spilling out of my heart toward other people. I felt forgiven of sins. I I felt a burden lift for the guilt and the penalty of all my, my misdeeds and my rebellion against God. And I wasn't even aware that something even more significant had happened. And that's that my life had been transferred from this earthly kingdom into the kingdom of God. And if you've received Christ, the Bible says that you are no longer a citizen of the kingdoms of this world. You are an alien, a journeyer, a, a person like residing in tents, a nomad in a life where you know that you are not in the place that you ultimately will be that your life and citizenship is not here on this earth, but it's in the kingdom of God. And one day, not long from now, God is going to usher you into that kingdom. And you will be with Him forever and ever and ever. And John says, no matter what this world is like, no matter what this life is like, no matter what we're facing, no matter how costly to be a Christian in this time, I'm your companion in the kingdom of God. He says also that he's their companion in patient endurance. Why patient endurance? Well, pretty obvious reasons. They're patiently waiting for something they don't have yet. If John's whole life was aimed at living on the island of Patmos and everybody was thinking, got to get to Patmos, got to get to Patmos, that's the place to be, can't wait to get to Patmos, that'd be one thing. But the island of Patmos was not John's final destination. And this world is not our final destination. And so as we wait and we endure and we have to put up at times with ungodliness in the world and we have to put up with some suffering at times and trials that the Bible says have great value for the believer. But as we have to live with those things, John says to the church, I am your companion in the patient endurance of Jesus Christ. Do you know that God has given you the power to endure anything. His grace is sufficient for whatever is on your plate. He knows intimately your needs. And he says that you can patiently endure waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not passive waiting. It's not that we're sitting around just saying, I can't wait to get out of here. This is awful. I hate life. To the contrary, the Bible says that we are to Wait patiently with endurance, the kind of patience that is continuing to work and labor, and use every moment, as Paul said, to the glory of God, laboring with all the energy that he gives us. Now he goes on and says that not only this, but he was on this Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I won't spend a lot of time on that. We talked about that last week. But essentially, John was a prisoner. He was a prisoner of, of, of a Roman penal colony on the island of patmos not where he wanted to be probably would have liked to have been anywhere else personally i don't know about you but i don't really like suffering i don't like pain i don't like having to go through unpleasant circumstances i don't like having conflict with people i don't like i don't like seeing people at odds with one another it grieves me it makes me sad but the fact is is that life is full of Circumstances at times that are difficult and are what the Bible refers to as trials. And the one thing that is encouraging for the believer is that even if you're going through difficulties, the Bible says that you are no one's prisoner. That you are not a prisoner to your circumstances. No one can make you respond any way except the way that you decide to respond. And the Bible says not only that, but the Bible says that as you go through trials, they can actually bring a peaceful fruit they can bring a fruit of maturity they can bring you to a place of spiritual growth in fact in my life it used to be in my short life now it's in my life pretty soon it's going to be in my long life but in my life i found that the greatest periods of growth that have taken place in my life have been when i've suffered the most i wish it were different you know i wish when everything was going good it was just like oh, you know you were just taken off spiritually But I found when I'm taken out spiritually and everything's going well, I rejoice in those times. I don't take those times for granted. But those are not the times that I grow the most. The times that I have found to be the most productive and fruitful for my spiritual growth have been through hardship. And I have to add, hardship, as long as I'm responding in a godly way. If I'm responding and saying, Lord, I'm not a prisoner to this situation. I am your prisoner. Lord, this circumstance is not something that someone else is doing to me. This is something that you've allowed to happen that I might grow and become more like your son Jesus. And so John is the same. He doesn't gripe or complain or or moan about what God has allowed to happen in his life. Instead, he says, I'm on the island of Patmos and God gave me something that I need to transfer to you. An important message. Even Paul, when he was in prison, never referred to himself as a prisoner of Rome. He always said, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. <laughs> I'm a servant of the Lord. It doesn't matter where we are or what our circumstances are. God says that you belong to Him. And so if you're in a time of rejoicing, then we rejoice with you. And you should rejoice too. If you're in a time of trial, the Bible says rejoice in that as well. Give thanks to God in all circumstances because even in that, God is molding you into the image and likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that when people see you, they say, if that's what Jesus was like, then I want to know Jesus. And so John is a prisoner, not of Rome, but of Jesus Christ. And he receives a vision. He says it was on the Lord's Day, and he was in the Spirit, and he heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then he lays out those seven churches. Now, the idea of being in the Spirit is, is not new in, in the Bible. This is a very common phrase. In fact, uh, repeatedly, when you see the, the prophets of God, they were constantly, in the Spirit, receiving visions. Now, a vision is not like what I have at times in my time with the Lord, of God speaking to me and ministering to me, and He's so faithful, and He wants to communicate with me, and He wants to communicate with you, and He will if we will take time to listen. And he's shown his faithfulness to our church and giving us just the right timing for the right things at the right moment in our church. And it comes from him. But this isn't what this is about. This vision is seeing something that hasn't happened yet. It's something in the future. It's, it's entering into the spirit world where there there is no time. We're bound by time in this world. We have the, the earth that rotates on an axis and we've got 24 hours in a day and 7 days in a week and 365 days in a year but... Outside of this realm, time has no dimensions. And so God ushers John into the timeless dimension of the spirit world and lets him see things that have happened in the past and things that are going to happen in the future. And so John experiences again what many in the Old Testament did. Isaiah uh, was an example. Ezekiel, Daniel, all of these men were given these visions of the future, these visions of in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ and the coming Messiah. And now John receives this vision, this supernatural vision of God, so that we can know the future and what lays ahead for us. And this voice gives him a very clear command. He wants him to write it down, and he wants it to be sent to the seven churches. You know, just as I'm sharing that, something's coming to mind that I wasn't even planning on sharing. But it delights me to know that God cares so much about the church. And so much about you, and so much about me, that he sent men and women who were testimonies of his name and his love and recorded his word that you might know him. Do you realize what a gift we've got in the word of God? And he gives it to us freely, and he says, Please read that you might know who I am, and that you might know what I require that you might have fullness of life and life eternal. And so John receives this command to write it down so that it can be sent to the churches because God loves his church and you are a part of that church and God loves you. And so even as we're reading this, God's intention was that men and women like ourselves would read it and be encouraged by it and inspired by it and that we would have a vision for the future so that we wouldn't waste our life On this small, menial kingdom that we exist in today. There's something far greater coming. And so, John, he turns around in verse 12 to see who this voice is and who's speaking to him. And as he turns, the first thing that catches his attention are these lampstands. Each one of these lamps had seven uh, candles on it, and there's seven of them. And they're around the throne room of God. You know, my wife loves candles. In fact, when I want to give her something that she really likes, it's either flowers or candles. I, I, it, you know, there's probably other things, but she's been so delighted with those things, I'm kind of stuck there. And so I like to get her candles. I like candles too, but she likes candles a lot more than I do. I, I appreciate them. She really enjoys them. And so we have a variety of candles in the house. And over the years, we've kind of collected, you know, little candles here and there. And the one thing about a candle that I've noticed is that the candle itself has no light. The candle itself has the uh, power and the capacity to be a vessel of light, but in and of itself, the candle has no light. It requires a, a lighting of that candle. And oftentimes, the, the we'll have times, we call them couch time. Uh, it's like, if you don't know what that is, well, it's like, I don't know, 15 minutes or 20 minutes, you're just sitting down and kind of gazing longingly into each other's eyes <laughs> and just enjoying one another's company. And talking about the day and what we're learning in our in our relationship with the Lord and how the kids were and how we're growing, you know, just intimate time together as a, as a couple. And and sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes she'll go around and light all these candles in the house and turn the lights off, and it's just very romantic and wonderful. And that those candles give light. Am I sharing too too much here? Okay, sorry. Anyway, I'm not going to share anything else. But 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 the idea is, that it's just a beautiful time for us to be together. It's really nice. And. I think there's a real lesson here for us about these lampstands. The church in and of itself is merely a vehicle of the light of Christ. The church itself has no capacity in and of itself to be light. As a believer, I have nothing to offer. I'm I'm more and more convinced the longer I walk with the Lord that I'm humbled and contented with the idea that I have nothing to give. The more I walk with the Lord, the more I want to talk about Him, the more I I find myself in conversations and there's really nothing else I'm interested in talking about. I mean, I could chit-chat about a whole lot of things. I'm pretty well read. I like to know a lot about a lot of different things. But all of those things are interesting to me, but my passion is talking about Jesus. That's who I really like to talk about. I like to find out how brothers and sisters in the Lord are growing, what they're learning, how God is using them, the victories that they're seeing in their life. If you talk to me about that stuff, I light up. I really like that. It's not that I don't enjoy the other things, but the thing that lights me up is Jesus and talking about Him. But I find in myself that a sense of acknowledgement that I have really nothing and no light in myself apart from Christ. And so these seven candlesticks, vessels of potential light, are around the the throne of God. And you know that God has really called us to be light. It's actually His determination that we would be light bearers. In, In Matthew 5, we're told that we are to be a light to the world. So even the believer is to be lit up ablaze with the love of Jesus Christ and the power of God. Those are two things that are so important, and I'm getting more and more convinced that we need as a church to aim at. The love of Christ, the love for Christ, and the love for one another. But also we need to be filled with the power of God That dunamis power that gives us the power to be light and blazing fire as God lights us up in the world that men might know and find Christ. And John goes on and he says that among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now we know from Daniel that this person he's referring to is is Jesus Christ exalted. In his present state, we're going to find out what he's like in a few moments. But John says that this person, like a son of man, referring to Jesus, the Messiah, the creator of the heavens and the universe, is walking among the lampstands. As I thought about that, that really encouraged me. Because it made me realize that Jesus could be anywhere. He could be doing anything he wants to. He's able and powerful enough that he can make his own decisions. Nobody's making him do anything. He's doing everything that pleases his heart. And I find it extremely comforting to read that by choice, of all the places that Jesus could be, of all the places that the creator of the universe could choose to be, he's walking among and in the midst of the churches. I find that extremely encouraging that God has taken such an interest in us and He takes such a personal interest in your life and sometimes you may not experience it or feel it or sometimes you may not even believe it, but the truth is, is that God right now is walking close to you. That in the midst of your life, He's got, how many things does He have to do? How busy is God? And yet He has the capacity to take a personal and vested interest in your life and even at this moment no matter what you're going through I don't care if you're walking closely, closely to God or not I don't care if you're in rebellion against God I don't care what your circumstances are it's my conviction from scripture that God wants to be close to you by choice he chooses to be intimate with you but he waits for a response and so we're not always feeling intimate with him but he's there waiting wanting to experience intimate fellowship with us by choice. And John begins to describe the Son of Man. He's dressed in a robe that reaches down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. These are the garments of a high priest that are being described here. You see, Jesus, according to Hebrews, is now become our high priest. In the Old Testament, there was a mediator, a man, a mere mortal, who would make sacrifice on behalf of the nation. And that mere mortal would be the only person to enter into the holy of holies, and that once a year. But now we have someone greater, far greater than a man—the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who now intercedes, and He's also our judge, which is a very interesting description of Him. As we go and look into chapter two and three, which is about God speaking through Jesus and making Himself known and revealing His assessment of the church at that time. Some of it's good, some of it's not so good. And so he comes and he tells the truth about the church, and so Jesus as the high priest is making known to the church what kind of people we should be and how we should live, and he rebukes the churches and then gently corrects them and tells them how they can enter into eternal life and how they can experience the rich reward awaiting for those who walk faithfully with Christ. And so he's dressed as a high priest and it says that his head and his hair were white like wool and as white as snow. And this is really just referencing his purity, the splendor of his majesty. And John goes on and he says that his eyes were like blazing fire. Now Ezekiel gives the very same description of God the Father. that his eyes It means that his eyes are penetrating. It means that nothing is hidden from his sight. He knows everything about you. Now that's a little scary. But it's also very comforting. Because having known everything about you and knowing your future and how you'll respond and what kind of a man or a woman of God you will be in the future, what kind of a man or woman of God you are now, God says, I love you. He says, I have a wonderful plan for your life. He says, I want you to be filled with power and I want you to preach the gospel. I want you to come into my kingdom with your arms full of fruit. To my glory and praise. And so God, Jesus Christ, with these penetrating eyes that are blazing like fire, sees everything and yet he loves us and accepts us because of Christ. He continues in verse 15 and he says that his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And bronze, especially when it's glowing in a furnace and when it's involving a description of Of Yahweh or Jesus Christ the Messiah, it always has to do with judgment. And so Jesus is coming one day as a judge. And thank God that the judgment that the believers are going to be facing is not a judgment of our works, but a judgment of reward for our service to Christ. The unbelieving world is going to face a terrifying judgment of God for their deeds and for their failure to receive the chosen. Messiah and his gift of eternal life. But for the church, we face no such judgment. The only judgment that you're going to face is a crown of righteousness. It's a a wreath that's given to a competitor who wins and runs well in his race. And so my encouragement to you is to run well so that when the judgment of God comes, you receive your crown that's already set aside for you as you faithfully serve the Lord Jesus Christ. John says his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. It really, in the Greek translation, means many waters. But when you get many waters rushing down something together, you got a loud sound. Many years ago, when my wife were, were married, uh, some couple of years after our marriage, we decided to take a little uh, vacation over to Niagara Falls. We were living in uh, Massachusetts, I believe, at the time. And uh, we were poor seminary students and had no two nickels to rub together. And so we found this really great deal to go to Niagara Falls. It was a package, you know, you get your hotel and your car, whatever you needed, the food. It was all provided for this one low, low price. And of course, the reason it was so low was that it was wintertime. And uh, my wife and I wandered around. The, I forget what the little town is called, but it's where Niagara Falls is. And as we're wandering around, it's like it's like Becky and myself and about ten other people, <laughs> and nobody was there. And a lot of the shops were closed, but Niagara Falls wasn't closed. That is a place of many waters. And as you get near to Niagara Falls, if you've never been there, it's a powerful experience. There's nothing like it. It is incredibly loud. In fact, the closer you get to Niagara Falls, and they actually have a labyrinth of, of tunnels under the falls. And as you go through that, that series of tunnels and at different points you can look out from behind the falls. It is so loud you can barely have a conversation in there. And John says that, that Jesus' voice was like Niagara Falls. It was it was awesome. It was explosive. It was majestic. John says that in his right hand he held seven stars. The right hand was always a place of honor. It was always a place of protection. There are a number of views of what the stars are. In fact, if you look in verse 20, we're told what these stars are. These stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now that doesn't really fully answer our question because what are angels of the seven churches? This word angelos Means can mean a, a, an angel or it can mean a messenger. It's applied to, uh, to human beings only occasionally in Scripture and, and, and never in the rest of the book of Revelation to anything else except angels. Some people believe that these angels that, that the book is being written to and that it will be delivered to are the pastors or elders of, of these seven churches. And, and from uh, a cursory reading, it makes a lot of sense that that may be the case. Others believe that these angels are actual angels, that they are messengers of God who are overseeing and protecting the ministry of His church. And that's not really surprising either. In fact, throughout Scripture, there's, there's a, a number of places that teach that the church and the individual believer is protected by God by angels. Children have angels. Adults have angels. The church even has protection. You see, two-thirds of the heavenly hosts are at God's command to accomplish his work on this earth. And one of the greatest works that God is doing is through the testimony of the church of Jesus Christ. And so it's really not surprising that these angels may actually be angels who are watching over the ministry, the precious work, the treasured work of Jesus Christ for the expansion of the kingdom of God that all who have been called might be drawn in. And so John says that Jesus has these angels in his hands. And I just, again, I, I can't help but think. you remember when John, in his younger years, was, who's going to sit at the right hand? You know, can I be at your right hand? That, that right hand is a place of, of privilege. And you see that Jesus, whether it's the pastor or the angel, he has the church in his hand. And he has an intimate interest. Do you know that even angels, according to 1 Peter, long to look into these things? They would love to be in your position. Do you know angels would rather be you than themselves if they had the choice? You see, the angels are the servants of God, but we are the sons and daughters of God. The angels' position will never change. They will always be God's servants. But we have been given the privilege of being the sons and daughters of God. One day to be changed into the image of Christ. The angels have no such promise. And so these angels are guarding over this precious work that God is doing. And my encouragement to you is that you be a man or a woman who is guarding the precious work of God in your life. Guard that, that wellspring, that artesian well of purity, of that inner work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Don't let anything defile you. And don't let anything defile your family. And don't let anything defile God's church, whether it's this local church or the church at large. But be a man or a woman who's doing what the angels are already doing, which is watching over and protecting the precious work of God, and so these angels are held in the right hand of God. And John then says that in his or out of his mouth comes a sharp, double-edged sword. If you've been with us over the last several months, we've been going through the Book of Ephesians and finished that up fairly recently. And as we were looking at the um, the armor of God, one of the weapons that we have is this sword. But in the Greek, it's not a big sword; it's a small dagger. It's meant to be concealed and brought out at a moment's notice whenever we have a need to protect ourselves from the wiles and the schemes of the enemy. But the sword that's coming out of Jesus' mouth is not a weapon of defense, it's a massive weapon of offense. It is the big sword. It is, usually stands about three to four feet long, it's huge, it's heavy. And interestingly, it's not in the right hand of Jesus. A very appropriate place would for that to be, that sword to be right in the right hand of, of the Messiah to do the work that he's been called to do, to do the work that's been destined from all eternity. But instead, it comes out of his mouth. You see, the weapons that the Lord uses are not the weapons that we are even closely or vaguely familiar with, it has nothing to do with the weapons of this world. But the weapons of the warfare of the believer and of Jesus are the word of God. That is a weapon that will accomplish God's purposes. It will cut and divide and and penetrate the very heart of a man or woman, if they're willing. A very effective, powerful weapon. And this weapon comes out of the mouth of God. It's his word, and it comforts me and encourages me to know that, that God, by just a word, can accomplish all of his purposes. And when I pray to him, oftentimes when we're praying for healing for someone in our church, I often will pray and I say, Lord, all you have to do is speak the word. Because it's so powerful. But this sword coming out of his mouth is also a a weapon of judgment against the nations who rebel and refuse to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And then John goes on and he says in the final part of his description, is that his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. This word brilliance is, is a, it's an appropriate English translation, but it's helpful to know that this word in the Greek is actually dunamis. It means explosive power. It means strength. And so John says that, that this Messiah, Jesus Christ, exalted, his face was shining with the strength and power of the sun. Blinding. Couldn't look at it. Too strong. The disciples, when they were privy to the transfiguration of Jesus on the Mount, saw the transfigured Christ briefly. And it was awesome. In fact, it was so awesome, they were terrified. Here are disciples that had spent three years with them, knew the Word of God probably backwards and forwards, had preached, had raised the dead. Had healed the lame and opened blind eyes, had been a partner with him and a companion in three years of ministry and living. And yet, when he was transfigured, down they went on their face in terror, the scripture says, because of his brilliance. I find that remarkable, but I'll tell you what I find more remarkable and astounding is that Jesus says through Paul that you, as a believer, are like stars in the universe as you hold out the testimony of Jesus Christ. Brilliant. Capable of guiding men and women back home. Beacons. And if that weren't enough, the scripture says in Matthew 13 from Jesus' mouth himself that in the parable he's talking about the weeds, the tares and the wheat, and the coming time when judgment will take place and those two... Those two elements, the, the tares and the wheat, will be separated. And he's talking about believers and unbelievers. Listen to what he says about the believers. Then the righteous will shine like a sun in the kingdom of their Father. <laughs> I, I can't hardly believe it. But Jesus is going to transform us, and you are going to be blazing and shining with the power of the sun. That's your destiny. Oh, you know, even as I'm sharing these things with you, I have to encourage you and say, live, live for what you will be, not what you are. Live for what Christ has made you and who He's designed you to be. Don't live a small life. Don't live a tiny life. But live for who you will be and what God has created you to be. Live big. Live for Him and for His glory and majesty. Because one day, not long from now, you are going to be transformed forever. And you will shine, not just like stars, but you will shine like the sun. And you will be like Christ, for you will see Him as He is. Now John, in verse 17, says, Look, when I saw Him, I fell on my face. Now, in the Middle East, it was very common. It was a practice of hospitality, very appropriate to to bow and kneel and sometimes even get on your face before an honored guest. This isn't what's happening here. John is terrified. If you look through all of the, the scriptures, and we don't have time right now to go through them, but Ezekiel and Daniel and the prophets, even, even uh, uh, Peter, receiving these visions, fell on their face in terror. It was a frightening thing to face God. None of them fell backwards. There were no catchers in the, <laughs> in the leadership of the the, uh, the church at that time, when it happened, these guys were on their face. There's a lot of that that goes on in the book of Revelation. If you look through Revelation, there's a whole lot of falling down going on, and either these people have a terrible problem with their equilibrium, or there's something for us that we can learn about what kind of men and women we should be. You see, right now in the kingdom of God, When the four living creatures, as we'll go and discover later on, every time they say, holy, 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 everybody just does a face plant. They're down, low, worshipping, glorying in God. And if you read the book of Revelation, this seems to be happening quite frequently. In fact, all the time. And they're down on their knees and worshipping. Now, that tells us something about what kind of Christians we should be now. What it tells me is I should be spending quite a bit of time down on my face before God if I truly understand who He is. Not who He was, the, the little helpless baby in the in the manger, but who He is. And so it behooves us as believers to be men and women who are comfortable down on our faces before God, worshiping, loving Him. Now John says that as though dead on the ground before the Messiah, that Jesus reaches out his right hand and he touches John. You know, that's something I really love about Jesus is that he was touching people all the time. Sometimes you have to kind of think about Scripture and, and back up and say, my goodness, he was touching people a lot, wasn't he? When he, when he healed someone of blindness, he touched their eyes. When he healed someone of, of leprosy, he touched them. No one else would touch them, but Jesus touched them. When he raised the dead, he often touched them. Jesus was a very touchy person. There's something very comforting about being touched. I, I've, had, I've had friends in the past where I was just so discouraged. And if somebody had come up to me and said, Well, you know, Bob, you really should be trusting God through this, and God's going to see you through, that wouldn't have met my need. In fact, talking wouldn't have met my need. And on occasion... There have been times when a brother or sister will just come up to me and my wife, for instance, will put her arm around me and just love me. And there's something very powerful about someone just being with you. I've had brothers do the same thing with me. And maybe you can relate to that. And Jesus is about touching people. And He's touching your life if you let Him. One of the things that I love about our fellowship is that we're a very affectionate church. I think that's God-honoring. I think that's following the model of Christ. I think that's an encouraging thing when it's done appropriately and in keeping with what scripture says about you know uh, doing things that are, that are appropriate with especially when you're talking about men and women but I think the church should be a place where the body of Christ can encourage each other through hugs and through uh, putting your hand on a brother's shoulder and praying for him or holding hands with others as you pray with them there's something powerful and Jesus reached down to John as he's dead like a dead man on the ground terrified Jesus comes and he touches him on the shoulder. And the thing that he says is, Don't be afraid. It actually means stop fearing in the Greek. You know, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and the disciples were going through the same process, the same terror, Jesus did the very same thing. He touched them. And he said, Do not be afraid. In fact, every time that that God reveals himself, the men are on the ground, they're terrified, and every single time you will find the Word of God saying, that Jesus or the Father reached out and touched them and said, Do not be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of when you're in God's hands. And so he encouraged him with those words. And he continues on and begins to identify who he is. He says, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the as we studied last week. I am the living one. I was dead. Yes, it's true, I was dead, but I'm not dead any longer. In fact, I'm alive, and I'm going to be alive forever and ever and ever. In fact, the book of Hebrews says that his life is indestructible, never to die again. It says that he holds the keys of death and Hades. really means authority. I I know that uh, when we purchased our home and when we bought a car, One of the last things to happen is that person hands me a set of keys. He didn't go out and make copies for everyone in the church. He didn't go out and make copies and hand them out to all his friends and say, Hey, whenever you need a place to to stop, I just sold a house and you can go there. It's the same with a car. My wife and I are the only ones that have a key to our car. And Jesus, by his authority, now has the power to overcome death. That means that he's got power to release you from the power of death. Death has no hold on a believer. Death for the believer is merely a beautiful transition into the kingdom of God. I can't wait to get there. But in the meantime, I want to serve with all the energy that God gives me to build his kingdom. And he also says that he has the power over Hades. It's a Sheol in the Greek or Hebrew. And what it means is that holding place. It used to be a holding place for believers and unbelievers, but Christ Brought back from the dead and from that place into his kingdom those who had believed in Christ before his death and resurrection. And so he has the power even over Hades. Now John finishes up by saying that there's a key to understanding the book of Revelation. He says you could go a thousand different directions, but there's an interpretive verse that helps us to understand what the book of Revelation holds for us. And it's in verse 19. There are three phases of this division of the book of Revelation. He says, first, write what you have seen. This is chapter 1, what he's he's seen at that point, up until that time, what's in the past tense, what he's already seen. He says, I want you to write these things down. And then he says, also, I want you to write what is now, the things that are happening in the church, the first two, uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. And then he says, I want you to, Write what will take place later, chapter 4, all the way through the end of the book, chapter 22. And so that is a very key interpretive point that it's important for you to understand and we'll be coming back to again and again as we study the book of Revelation. I just want to close by saying that Jesus is not an infant. He's not even a human. He is not someone walking the streets of Galilee any longer. He has no weakness He has no uh, infirmity of any kind. He has no suffering. In his hand and in his authority are all things. He has power over the universe. And you are his chosen vessels to shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have no light in and of yourselves. But as you surrender yourself to the King of Kings and to the power of the Holy Spirit who has been given as a gift for the ministry and the power of evangelism, God will set you ablaze for his glory and his purposes. And one day, not long from now, either through your death or my death or through his coming for the rapture of the church, we will instantly be in his presence. For some of us, it may happen this week or a year from now, but my encouragement to you is to be worshiping as he is. Worship him as he is. Not as he was or as he was years ago as a baby, but worship him as he is. Obey Him. Love Him. And know that even now, He's in the midst of the church and He's holding you in His right hand and He loves you and He's going to bring you home safe and sound into His kingdom. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. God, we give You glory and praise. And Lord, may our life be marked by worship. May our life be marked by by a willingness and a humility to surrender ourselves to falling down before you is a habit of our life. God, may you give us the humility of John who didn't boast in himself or elevate himself in any way, but God, he called himself a servant, a brother, and a companion. And Lord, we know that you're coming soon. In the meantime, give us the courage to live so that no matter what comes, that we will be faithful witnesses, life or death the rolling of eyes or the the snickering of our friends, whatever it might be that Satan used to deter us, God, help us to be warriors, faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ, considering ourselves to be a prisoner of no one except the love of Christ. God, keep us safe this week in your ever-loving arms. And God, help us to bring glory to your name. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.